Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> All right, I got my work cut out for me. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you have one. If you don't, as always, I'd encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, let that be our gift to you. You keep that. I think you will really be helped if you actually open up the Bible, even if you're very familiar with the Bible, and follow along with us. Uh, we're going to be, we have been working through the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. For the past few weeks, we'll be in it for the balance of the summer. We find ourselves in chapter 2, and we're just going to handle a very short portion of scriptures today, just of scripture, just verses 13 through 16. We'll get to in just a second as you're finding it. By the way, as always, if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find the page number for the text on the screen in the, the two copies that we have. Same version, just different editions of it. So we have the page 775 or 986. You can find that on. Again, keep that Bible for yourself if uh, you don't have a Bible. As you're finding that, let me mention to you two uh, important things going on in uh, the life of the church. One, tonight we will be having um, uh, our One Another Fellowship member meeting. We do that every other month, uh, generally on the first Sunday of the month, unless it's a holiday weekend like last weekend, so we're doing it tonight. If you are a member of Crosspoint, or you consider Crosspoint home, or this is a place that you're checking out, I would really encourage you to be here. Members, you need to be here, if I could just say sort of gently, but sort of firmly, because we, these are the, we only have six of these a year, and these are the times when we as a church family need the congregation to help us make decisions about things. Uh, and although we are led by elders on several important issues, ultimately the final court of human authority in the church, we believe, is the entire body. And tonight we have some very important things to discuss. In particular, we, uh, as you know, the same-sex marriage ruling by the Supreme Court has uh, potentially put Bible-believing churches like us in a situation where we need to be thoughtful about some revisions in our constitution and bylaws to protect us in the future from, a from possible litigation. And so we, of course, want to posture ourselves in love and uh, graciousness towards people who disagree with us on this matter. We clearly as a church believe that marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman for life, a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman for life. Uh, and we need to do some things as a church to help us posture ourselves in an increasingly hostile political climate. So that will require us to make some changes in our constitution and bylaws, which we need the membership of the church to uh, speak into and ultimately vote on. So we need you here tonight to do that. We're not going to change it tonight. We're going to propose the changes, let you uh, think about it for a couple months, and then at our next meeting, Lord willing, if we're ready, we'll vote on it. But we need you here tonight for that. Then secondly, this Wednesday night, we are continuing our second week of our study of the end times or the last things, or the theological term is eschatology, meaning the study of last things. Last Wednesday, I spoke about the different views of the millennium, 
This Wednesday night is going to be really, we're going to really get where the rubber meets the road. We're going to talk about Jesus' return, kind of the timing of that, different events surrounding that. We're going to talk about the uh, rapture, what it is, what it isn't. We're going to talk about tribulation, different views on that. And we're going to talk about the Antichrist. Um, So those will be some really hot topics. We have uh, a meal at 545, and then we gather in here at 630, usually about an hour hour and 15, hour and 20, hour and 25 minutes worth of teaching. It's summertime. We're a little bit more lenient there. Kids don't have to be in school, but we'd love for you to come. We're just doing that for four weeks. And by the way, if you're missing any of that, um, it's all online. All the notes are online for you to pick up later. That'd be helpful for you. All right. Well, let's read second, uh, I'm sorry, first Thessalonians chapter two, verses 13 through 16. And we're going to settle down on what uh, a, a particular verse, verse 13, that over the years has really very early on in my Christian walk caught my attention as saying something really, really significant about the Christian life. And it's this idea that the Word of God is actually doing something. It's performing a work in the life of believers. So if you've noticed, there's been sort of a theme in the scriptures that have been read already and the prayers that have been prayed even this morning as Reuben read from Psalm 19, this beautiful text about the Word of God in the Old Testament. And Robert read about the Word of God, how it's breathed out from 2 Timothy chapter 3, that there's this theme that we want to center our lives on and center our time together on about the Word of God and what it is and what it does. So today, we're just looking at a very short text, and it won't be, which is usually our custom, is to explain the text in the context of the letter that it's written to the first century audience and all of that. We'll do a little bit of that. But really today, we want to use especially verse 13, which has some very important things to say to us about the Word of God, and use that as a kind of platform to to establish a doctrine of the Word of God, which I think is an important thing for us to do occasionally as a church. So we're going to look at really two things, what the Word of God is, and we'll have it up on the screen in just a moment, so don't, don't panic. We're going to really look at two things, what the Word of God is and what the Word of God does. So what it is and what it does. So let me, let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, verses 13 and, and six, through 16. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to a church that he planted over the course of about a month. He's gone on because of persecution and a disruption in the city because of the preaching of the gospel. Some people were upset about it. He's moved on. He was worried about the church because he didn't have much time to spend with him. He sends Timothy back to get a report of how they're doing. Timothy goes and visits the church at Thessalonica and brings word back to Paul. It's mostly encouraging, but there are some troubling things. And one of the things that is troubling Paul and Timothy about the church that they planted is that this church is undergoing persecution from people that are upset at them for turning to Christ. Not only their own countrymen, but also some Jewish uh, believers who have not, or some Jewish people who have not trusted in Christ and are persecuting them for that. So, verse 13, Paul writes this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Before I pray, let me just kind of give you a little picture of why I think what we're going to do today is, is, is important for us. I think it's very important that we as Christians understand what the Word of God is and how it is to be used. A couple months ago, I was in my front yard mowing my lawn, and in my, the back of our house, in the backyard, we have this workshop. And uh, one of my sons is really into woodworking, and he's into buying all sorts of very specific uh, tools, and he has more chisels and axes and things that you, saws and all stuff that you can use for woodworking and you can shake a stick at. He's ordering chisels all the time. Amazon package is chisels. And so he has these chisels, and these chisels are very important. You've you got to sharpen them, and you've got to spend, I mean, he'll spend, he'll get some chisels in the mail, and he'll spend like hours sharpening these chisels because the end of this chisel has to be very sharp to to be as effective as possible at chiseling or whittling the wood. And these chisels are his, and they're for a very specific purpose, chiseling wood. Well, I have another son <laughs> who uh, that day was, um, had the little twenty-two rifle off the back of the deck, and he was shooting squirrels off the back of our deck and just picking them off one by one. And uh, as he was shooting squirrels, uh, a little casing of a 22 jammed. You know, it's supposed to just kind of, it's an old Henry rifle, and it's a little casing supposed to kick out. And so he couldn't keep shooting squirrels until he got the little casing unjammed from the, the bolt of the gun. And so he goes into the workshop, which he's right next to, and says, Oh, this metal stick looks like it was made to dig into the rifle to bore out the shell. That's what I will use this sharp metal stick for. And so I was, I think the lawnmower might even have been going, and I heard this yell, what are you doing? And it was the son who owns the chisels, who understands the proper use for the chisels, yelling at the younger brother who was using the chisel for a completely unthinkable purpose of the chisel, right? Well, that's, I mean, that was the first time I ever thought they were actually going to, like blows were going to be thrown, and I jumped in the middle of them to the, the, okay, stop. In the same way, I think Christians use the Word of God wrongly if we don't understand what it is and what it is for and what it does. So we're going to look here at the, what the Word of God is. Before we get into what the Word of God is and what it does, let's just kind of think real briefly about what's going on here in this text. So Paul, verse 13, I think is where we're going to settle down. He's talking about how they've received the Word of God. Paul has preached the Word of God to them. They received it as the Word of God, and it's at work in them. He could, what Paul is saying is he's saying, I see the evidence, the fruit of your conversion and the, the reality, the authenticity of the 
work of God in your lives and how you receive the word that we preach to you because it's producing something in you. And then he goes on in verses 15, 14, 15, and 16 to say that he knows this because they became imitators of the early church in Judea, which was made up primarily of Jewish Christians who were Jews who converted, who, who, who accepted Messiah. They converted, they, they accepted Messiah as, their, as the Lord, Jesus as Lord, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And they were starting to be persecuted by their Jewish countrymen. And what Paul is saying is he's making a comparison between the Thessalonians who turned to Christ and they're now suffering persecution from their Gentile friends. And he's making a comparison. He's saying, I know that you're truly chosen by God, as he says in verse 4 of chapter 1, because there's evidence, there's fruit in you. And then, Paul being a Jew, and he cares deeply about Jews, he's passionate about taking the gospel to Jews. In fact, that was his custom. He would go to new cities and he would start in the synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews and then he'd move on to the Gentiles. And in verses 15 and 16, it almost seems like Paul's a little angry at the Jews. He, he speaks about these Jews that killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove them out, displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then he says, wrath is coming upon them. Now this verse, just one little aside here, that verse has been a source of controversy in the history of the church and has been used by people as justification for poor treatment of the Jews because Paul is saying here that it's the Jews that killed Jesus. Well, we know from the rest of the Bible that really all of us, sin, humanity, killed Jesus, right? The Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles, all of us have, every person, all of us are guilty before God. And we know that Paul is not making an anti-Semitic remark here as if Paul has something against the Jews because Paul himself was a Jew. And I think what's going on here is Paul is expressing his frustration with his countrymen who are hindering the gospel, right? We could read in Romans chapter 9 where Paul just pours out with his heart for his countrymen, the Jews, and he says, I care so deeply about these people, my people, that I wish I were accursed if that's what it meant that the gospel would go to them. So just a little aside here, people in the history of the church that have used this verse right there, verse 15, as, as a sort of um, uh, validation for poor treatment of Jewish people, it's completely off base. Okay, now that I got that little, that, little, that little situation tucked away, we can put that in the cupboard and go back to verse 13. So here's where we want to spend our time. Paul says, I thank God for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So two things that we want to consider, and we're going to read a lot of scripture today. I'm going to move fast. This is just kind of a summary of what I think Christians should understand about the Word of God, and then we're going to come around the Lord's table, as is our custom once a month, and receive communion. This is just a summary. There's so many books and good resources that you could go deeper in with this. But we want to consider two things. What the Word of God is, and what the Word of God does. So Paul says there that the word of God is not the word of men, but it's the word of God. So four quick things about what the word of God is and what Christians have historically believed what the word of God is. First, they have believed that the word of God is inspired. In fact, we read this earlier this morning, Robert read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
um, in verse 14 and 15, 16. Let me read from verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what we mean and what Christians have historically meant when they say that the Bible is inspired, they don't mean that the Bible is merely inspirational, right? Like, wow, that was a good word, brother. I mean, that, that really inspired me. No, what we mean is that it is, that it is breathed out. It's inspired by God. He has divinely orchestrated the Word of God through many, many men, through many centuries, that in their setting, in the context of their personality, in the context of their cultural setting, God inspired the Holy Spirit through men, through their circumstances, through their personalities, orchestrated and superintended their lives and what they wrote down so that what they wrote down in the books of the Bible that we have is exactly what God intended to say. Now we have to say lots of things that we won't take time to say. We can just say a few brief things is that we have to take into consideration that there's all sorts of genres of scripture, right? And so do we take the Bible literally? Well, Yes and no, in a sense. There are genres of Scripture where, where like in the Psalms, God is, 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 the Holy Spirit is superintending the life of a psalmist who's in a very difficult spot, and that psalmist is praying what's called an imprecatory prayer, asking that God would bash the teeth of his, of his enemy's infants against the rocks. Well, it's not that God wants to crush babies. It's that it's that the Holy Spirit is, is inspiring that person to write their feelings that become a picture of the calamity and the distress of the human soul that then we read centuries later and say, ah, oh, that's, that's true, that's real. So it's true, it may not be prescriptive, it's not something we should do, but it becomes a picture of, of God's true work in the human soul. So the Bible is inspired by God. Let me read another Another uh, passage that kind of gives a little more light on this from Second Peter chapter, chapter one, um, in verse starting in verse. Uh, let's go to verse twenty. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy, speaking really uh, sort of. In a, in a sort of catch-all phrase for the Old Testament, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Here's the important phrase, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that doesn't mean that God sort of like zapped the Old Testament writers and, or even the New Testament writers, which I think this verse, even though it's part of the New Testament, would also apply to, and just sort of made them like robots to write out, you know, whatever it was, Ezekiel or Genesis or Exodus, but that the Holy Spirit was working in and through Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and the New Testament writers so that what we have is breathed out by God and is exactly what God intends to have for us. Now, before we move on, just a couple of questions that you may have. People often ask, well, how do we know what books should be in the Bible and how did that come about? Well, that's kind of, there's two answers to that question. First, the Old Testament was, remember, at that time in the Old Testament, God's people were a national identity, the, the Jewish nation. 
And at that point in redemptive history, God is working basically through one people to be a blessing to all of the nations. And so it was very clear who the authority was in the nation, the Old Testament prophets and priests and kings. And all of the, the books of the Old Testament come through these prophets who were clearly recognized by God's people to have this special authority by God. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of these wrote these words of God that was delivered as God's words to God's people. And the 39 books of the Old Testament are completely undisputed because that's what God's people clearly recognized as God's word through their prophet. The dispute, I think, more comes in the New Testament. People wonder, well, how do we know what books should be in the New Testament? So what is the, what's the test as to whether or not a book should be in the New Testament? Here's how the 27 books of the New Testament got to be in the New Testament. The early church, early on, within the first few decades after the life of Christ and then into the early 100s, began to recognize the authority of the apostles, the 12 men that were with Jesus, the 12 disciples, who then became the apostles. They had special authority. And then one falls off at the end, remember Judas, and then another is chosen in early on in Acts, Matthias. Then Paul, who was not with Jesus during his early earthly ministry, but then has Jesus come back down to him in Acts chapter 9, slap him around a little bit, knock him off a horse, make him blind for a couple days, and say, you're now going to start serving me instead of persecuting me, and you're now, you're now my guy. And so that's where Paul becomes an apostle there in Acts chapter 9. And so all of the New Testament books, all 27 of them, uh, with the exception of a couple that we'll talk about in a second, come through are either written by one of the 12 disciples, apostles, or through one of their ministry associates. So the early church, very on, there was all sorts of letters, all sorts of things being written. Much of it very helpful, some of it wrong, some of it off, just like history in our time today. But the early church very on, even in the early 100s, began to use this test of whether or not it came through the hand of an apostle. And there's only a couple books in the New Testament that are not written by one of the apostles. Mark, Luke, Acts, Jude, and Hebrews. Now Mark comes to us from uh, Peter's authority because Mark was a ministry associate of Peter. Luke and Acts comes to us through Paul's authority because Luke was a ministry associate of Paul. So the early church began to recognize those gospels in the book of Acts as having the authority of Peter and Paul. Jude is another uh, New Testament letter that was not written by an apostle, but Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. And so they gave that the authority of the apostles. And then Hebrews is really the only book in the New Testament that we're not sure who the author is or was, but there's such a beauty and a self-attesting clarity to Hebrews that the early church very early on recognized that whoever wrote it, whether it was Paul or Luke or one of the other uh, apostles, that it either came through one of them or through one of their ministry associates and was very early on recognized as being from God to his church. So then if you are a student at Auburn or Georgia or Columbus State and you have a liberal philosophy professor who looks at the Bible and tries to discredit the Bible by saying, ah, the Bible's just a collection of all this stuff, and the early church in the 300s or 400s just decided what books should go in the Bible to sort of be sort of for their purposes, that the Bible was collected in the mid-300s in Rome and decided all that. That's hogwash. 
The Bible early on, even in the early 100s, is, is exactly what we know it of as now. And two centuries later, when they had these church councils, those church councils only just sort of put their stamp of approval on what the church already believed. So the Bible is inspired by God, superintended by God, and we have exactly what God intends for us to have. Move, move through these next couple ones very quickly. The Bible is also inerrant. What this means is that the Bible in its original manuscripts is completely without error. So when God was speaking through Moses or Paul or Peter or Jeremiah, what they wrote down in Hebrew or Greek is exactly what God intended them to write down. Now, of course, the Bible has been translated to hundreds and hundreds of languages throughout the centuries. And in the, even in the original languages, there have been many, many copies or manuscripts of these originals. So we don't have any original copies of like Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, right? There's no like exactly the parchment that Paul was writing on. We don't have somewhere in a museum in, you know, London or Rome or, or wherever. But we, we have a, a, a huge, huge pile of manuscript evidence, copies of the Bible, old and new, throughout the centuries, thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Some of them have errors, and there are some disputed texts, certainly. But we have multiple, multiple copies, and uh, over 95% of all the errors are grammatical or spelling or punctuation, and there's only a very few, very few portions of Scripture where there's actually word differences in these manuscripts. But what, what we realize is because we have so many copies of the Bible throughout the centuries that we can look at, okay, we've got, let's just say, for example, we've got a Got 100 copies, just for example, and 95 of them use this word in the translation, and five of them use this. That's how Bible translators say, okay, we're going to go with what 95% of the, you know, the, the copies say. That's kind of how they make decisions on these disputed texts. And so the, 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 the manuscript evidence of the inerrancy of the Bible in other language is, is an embarrassment of riches, friends. There are over 24,000 manuscript copies, not full copies, but fragments and copies of the New Testament that we have compared to the next largest number of copies for any other book of history. I think it's like 5,000. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. You can have more confidence that what you have in your English Bible is a faithful translation of what Paul and Peter and Moses and the other Bible writers wrote in their languages of Hebrew or Greek, you can have more confidence in that than you can in the history book you read in a classroom that George Washington crossed the Delaware Potomac. I always get mixed up. See, I don't even know that. I mean, what is it? What did he cross? The Delaware? Uh, you don't even know. I mean... <laughs> Okay, anyway, you can have more confidence. There's more manuscript evidence than there is of even the founding of the United States. So don't be, don't be, uh, don't be intimidated by people who say that the Bible has errors in it. And secondly, then thirdly, I'm sorry, it, what follows if the Bible's inspired by God and it's without error, completely true in everything that it speaks to, clearly then it follows that the Bible is authoritative follows it if it is the word of God, from God, without error, 
It carries God's authority. Now, clearly, friends, we could spend a whole bunch of time just talking about how our culture has a problem with authority. We hate authority, don't we? I mean, we like it when it's exercised on our behalf. But anytime that authority sort of comes at us, anytime, anytime the word of God is squared at us, we don't like it. And that's why I think you see a move in churches to sort of relativize everything, right? I think that's a terrible thing. If you're, listen, I, I have this talk all the time with people that are in the army and come and are always asking me, hey, I'm going to this place. What should I be looking for in a church? I would say, man, make sure that you find a church where the word of God is central and where they are not ashamed of it and where they proclaim it. And they don't just read a couple little scriptures and then float off on their little hobby horse topical sermons about how to have, you know, three better ways to have a better Tuesday or manage your anger or have better finances or all this silly stuff, which I'm not saying that's not important. The Bible does speak to all of those issues. But in those situations, they're making the central authority, the felt need of the hearers rather than the word of God. Friends, that is terrible for a church. The, it, it just marks, it just it illuminates to us how important it is that when we gather together, what is central among us is the word of God because it is God's word. He's spoken, so we should read it and listen to it and heed it and help one another obey it. Friends, that's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, don't forsake the public reading of Scripture. Have you noticed we read Scripture a lot here? If you leave here and go to another church and they read one verse and then jump off into all these cool little things about how you should cope with life, don't walk out of that place run out of that place because although those people may be cool and sexy and good looking they haven't settled on the fact that God's word is what God's people need by the way that's why and this is Brad's preference so don't don't just don't get mad at me if your pastor that you came from the church doesn't do that's why I like this big old bad boy right I don't have some little cute little table where I'm sitting down with a cup of coffee to, like I'm having a conversation with you, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, let's have some conversation. I'm all for conversation. But, but we need young men who are mighty in the scriptures, who know what the Bible says, and who have enough courage to get up and say, in a bold yet compassionate, broken-hearted, humble sort of way, but yet with confidence say, this is what God's word says. Four of you believe me. Praise God. All right. <laughs> I'm way, I'm, I'm spending way too much time. So it, it's not only authoritative, it's also sufficient. Finally, before we move on, so sufficient. So uh, I think Paul, uh, uh, Robert alluded to this when he was praying. Let me just read out a second. Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Do you see what he's saying there? Peter is saying that through, and he, I think he's speaking shorthand for the word of God, that he's giving us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Now, he hasn't given it to you in a fortune cookie sort of way so that you, you know, your Bible's collecting dust for months and then something happens in your life and you go, 
blow the dust off of it, and you just kind of do like Bible roulette, hoping that you can open up the Bible just to a particular thing that says who you should marry or what job you should take. If you go to the Bible like that, you're like my son that's taking that chisel and treating it as a metal stick to unjam a a casing out of it. Oh, you may get, you, God in his kindness may just bless you with something, but that's not the way we approach. So the Bible speaks to everything that we need. It doesn't have specific fortune cookie answers to every situation in our lives, but as we immerse ourselves in it, as we hear it preached and taught, as we read it for ourselves, as we engulf ourselves in a community that makes it central, it will speak to every area of life and shine wisdom on it and tell us how we should live. So the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is authoritative, and the Bible is sufficient. So that's, what, that's the isness of the Bible. What is the doesness? What does it do? What does the Word of God do? One, the Bible clearly, and friends, this, this is not rocket science, by the way, right? Um, this is, this is just, just clear from the Bible. Anybody can figure this out. I figured it out, so that should tell you anybody can figure this out. And by the way, this is, this, I think, just, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just things that I've been thinking about in these past few weeks. What the Word of God does, it instructs us about God. So Reuben read to us from Psalm 19, where it speaks about how the Word of God um, revives the soul. It teaches us about about God, right? But here's the deal about how the Bible instructs us. It, it teaches us about God because that's the chief end of man is to know God, to worship Him, to glorify Him forever. But, but th- this knowing about God is not the goal. Knowing about God, the instruction that we learn about who God is from the Bible then leads us into worship, right? So you may want to write this down that good theology is only good if it leads to doxology, and that means worship. So theology, the study of God, isn't meant to exist in a cube by itself so that we can be Bible thumpers and beat people up and have systematic theology classes. Theology should crush our hearts, wound us, and heal us so that we can worship God. Theology should lead to doxology. Learning should lead to worship, right? And so that's, that's what we get from, that's what it does in our lives. Because remember, remember the verse that we're basing all of this on in verse 13. Paul says, you accepted it as the word of God, as it really is, the word of God. That last phrase there in verse 13, which is at work. So the word is not latent, it's not inactive, it's at work in the life of believers. So how does it work? It instructs us about God, number one. Number two, it shows us Christ and our need for him. It shows us Christ and our need for him. Let's look first at at our need for him and how the word of God convicts us. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 and 13, super important text. This is one you should memorize. Hebrews four, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's like the word of God is a sword that before we use it on anything out here, 
It's used on us to sort of strip us of all of our facades and make us naked before God and expose our hearts. And when our hearts are exposed, God intends that not to make us feel guilty and feel terrible forever, but to show us that we can't save ourselves, right? That's the word of God is meant to crush us so that we would look up and see that we need a savior. And that's exactly what what the Bible does for us. It shows us the work of God. So it's not, again, it's not a fortune cookie that you go to for little one-off advice pieces on how to navigate through difficult situations. It is a grand mosaic where God is painting the story of redemption from beginning to end, even in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, here's just an example. The Old Testament's not a bunch of moral stories on how Johnny and Susie should do better. Right? Jesus, after his resurrection... Before his ascension, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection, he appears to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's sort of clouding who he truly is to them, saddles up next to him, seven-mile walk. And they say, you know, he's going, hey, what's going on, guys? You look a little down. Hey, haven't you heard? And they killed Jesus. And Jesus says to them, oh, you slow to learn all that the law and the prophets have taught. And it says that Jesus took the Old Testament, starting with Moses and all of the prophets, and on the rest of that seven-mile walk, he explained to them all of the things in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament pertained, was, was really speaking about him. So Jesus was taking stories, and we've done this before, but I think you need to hear it again. Jesus is taking stories like David and Goliath, I imagine, and he's saying to them, look, what is David and Goliath about? This is the way many modern uh, American Christians and Christ churches in America see David and Goliath. They teach little kids, all right, Johnny and Susie, you're like David, and you should not be scared of the giants in your life, because if you can be like David... And you can reach down deep within yourself, Johnny or Susie, and throw some, some rocks of courage at the giant of fear in your life, then you can be like David. So, okay, Johnny and Susie, don't be scared. Be like David. And Johnny and Susie are like, yeah, 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 except God, I'm scared. And then we run off into life and we try and we just feel guilty because we're not courageous. But that's not what these Old Testament scenes are picturing. How should we view that in a Christ-centered sort of way? Well, the real story of David and Goliath is not David, or is not Johnny or Susie, you're like David. It is Johnny or Susie, you and all of us are like Israel. We are weak and wounded, scared, petrified. We can't defeat Goliath. We can't do anything about him. So we're in the wood line shaking with our tails between our legs. And David is a picture of the warrior king, an imperfect picture, but he's a picture of the warrior king. And who does David picture who's coming? The true king, Jesus, who is the good shepherd, the good king, the good warrior, who will stand and fight on our behalf. And so here's the deal, Johnny and Susie. You're scared in the woods. You need to not trust in yourself and your own little moxie, but you need to trust in the true warrior king that has come, Jesus, who slays the dragon of fear, sin, death, and the grave for us. And because the true king, David, who is Jesus, has triumphed, when you trust in him, when you are part of his kingdom, you triumph too. 
And that's what we see that we can't do it and the Bible shows us that. And we need to rightly see that that's how the word works in us. Thirdly, the Bible sanctifies us, helping us to fight sin. What's this word sanctification means? It means that it grows us. It gives us spiritual strength. Helps us to resist temptation. Psalm 119, which I think, instead of watching the golf or the recorded version of Wimbledon this morning when you get home, I think before you do any of that, you should read Psalm 119. It is an unbelievable treatise on the Word of God. Listen to what this psalm says about how the Word of God helps us to fight sin. Listen to this, especially you young men. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we read the word of God, when we put ourselves under the right preaching and teaching of the word of God, it, that, that's, that's verse 13 from 1 Thessalonians 2, remember? It's at work in us. It works. It has this power when we expose ourselves to it to help us as Christians to fight temptation and sin. It helps us to resist. What does it mean to be, to be sanctified? It means to produce fruit, to be more godly, to, to, to become more and more like Jesus. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, the text that we read earlier, is that Paul is saying, hey, I know that the word is at work in you, that it's sanctifying you, that it's helping you, because you have become imitators like these other Christians in Judea who have suffered persecution. So the word of God helps us fight sin. It produces and strengthens and grows our faith. Let me read from Romans, Romans 10, verse 17, an incredibly important verse, another one that, that I'd encourage you to memorize. It says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So we see this, this clear evidence that the word sanctifies us, strengthens us, helps us to fight sin. George Mueller, who was an English churchman in the 1800s, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and he was famous for starting an orphanage where he uh, really saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds of orphans who were just out on the street in London during that time in the 1800s. And he's well known for never, he just had this incredible faith. He never even asked for money, but over the course of decades, he he, he had an orphanage for hundreds and hundreds of orphans, never asked for money. And this, over the course of that time, just by God's providence and blessing, money just came in, gifts. Just, he just kind of went from week to week, and money would just show up for him. He's just a great example, great man of faith. And this is what George Mueller said about, about the Word of God, the importance of it in his soul and on the soul of a believer. He says, But in what shall we attain to this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in Him as shall enable us to let go of the things of the world as vain and worthless in comparison? Oh, that's a great sentence. Like, how do you fight 
the things that battle against your soul, young man. How do you let go of worthless stuff? And I'm not just talking about things that are obvious and sinful, but even just like how do you, how do you break away from wasting your life on video games and silly little vain pursuits? He says, I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. So how do we do it? How do we attain joy? How do we attain life? And how do we fight sin? Mueller gives us this this wonderful example by giving ourselves to the lifelong study of God's word. And some of you, I'm sure, at this point will object and say, but it's hard. It's hard. No kidding, it's hard, man. But everything in life that's worth value is hard. Right? If you want it bad enough, you, you, you will do it. We know how to figure stuff out, man. We know how to figure stuff out. God has put in us a desire for the things that we want. And maybe the most important thing that people in this room right now who have difficulty with the Bible need to do before they leave this room is to ask God to reorder their affections and say, God, would you give me a desire for God's word and would you give me a certain tenacity and grit to do whatever it takes to put myself on a lifelong trajectory of being a man or a woman that thirsts after God's word and friends that is a lifelong deal and you must before you leave this room if you're the type of person that reads your bible only occasionally or just kind of comes and only hears god's word occasionally and you as a result are weak because of it before you leave this room pray this prayer god reorder my affections and it's not like oh, that'll just solve everything you have to pray that prayer for the rest of your life sometimes i sit in my study in this church and i'm beating down, I'm weak, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, and I don't want anything to do with next Sunday. I don't want to preach, I don't want to open God's word, I'm sick of people, I'm sick of myself, and I just want to go eat donuts and be miserable. (laughs) And you know what (laughs) happens more often than you think, brothers and sisters. (laughs) And I have to sit in that chair, man, and I got to say, God, reorder my heart. Like, I don't want to want you. I don't even desire you right now, God, and I confess it. Reorder my affections. And that is a legitimate and honest prayer that I think sincere Christians must pray their entire lives. Which then brings me to my fourth point. I guess I just made it, but let's roll it up because we got it on the screen anyway. Is that the Word of God transforms our minds and our affections. Here's another verse you should memorize. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And here's this wonderful verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Young man, how will you navigate? Young woman, how will you navigate through a culture that is trying to destroy you by by a world, a media, a false culture that is trying to destroy and give you a perverted sense of who you are sexually and in every other way? How will you navigate through that unless you are constantly exposing your mind and your heart to God's word which he intends to be at work in believers how can you get how can you breathe without God's word Christian 
This word transforms our mind and it transforms it by changing. I want you to see this by changing our affections, not by, oh, just this little Bible reading plan I got to do. I just got to grip my teeth. And, you know, Brad says, all right, I know he's right. I got to read my Bible more. And so I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read my Bible more because I want to be a good Christian. I mean, that'll last you for about two days, right? But, but see, that's not the calling here. The calling is to joy. God wants to reorder our affections and give us delight. Back to Psalm 19. I know it's getting long. Hang with me. Psalm 119, verse 14, it says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Delight. God's calling us to delight as we meditate on his word. Verse 32, listen to this, Psalm 119. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Listen, young man, when, you, when you're fighting sexual temptation and you limp to God in his word and you ask for God to make, make his way and his word more desirable for you than some counterfeit sexual sin, he will do it and he will make obedience more delightful and more beautiful and more enjoyable than the sin that you don't know how you're going to say no to. Friends, I know that because it says it in God's word and I know that because I've lived it, young man. I've been wrecked by the very same things that you've been wrecked by and I can remember sitting in a barracks and forbidding one whether or not I could navigate this Christian life and the flesh that tore apart of me. And God, over the course of time, began to change my affections, right? And he made obedience. And by the way, I'm not saying that I've got this thing licked, right? I'm not acting like I've arrived, like I'm some super Christian. I'm a knucklehead, and I'm still a knucklehead. But I can tell you this, because of what God's word says in my own life, is that he will reorder your affections. He will do it. He will do it. It's not a fortune cookie, but he gives it. As you give yourself to God's word in the life of his people, he changes your heart, and he gives you a new affection. Listen to what Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish cat, back in the 1800s said, I love this cat, Tommy C. He's my man. I get to heaven someday, smoke a cigar with Spurgeon. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to get some emails on that. I don't smoke. That's terrible for you. But in heaven, there's no disease, whatever. And I'm going to go to my boy, Tommy Chalmers. I'm going to say, look, Jack, you helped me. You helped me. And he had this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not explosive, although it's explosive, but the expulsive. In other words, it expels. It expels. And the point he's making is that when we behold God rightly, when we behold the gospel rightly, when we see Jesus as he stands forth from the word of God, when we see him rightly, he's so beautiful, he's so wonderful that he becomes a new affection that expels, it kicks out old broken affections. Listen to Tommy C. I'm going let to let him say it in his words rather than mine. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In the gospel do we so behold God as that we may love God. It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. The spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart 
brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered, listen to this, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way that deliverance is possible. Do you see that? Tom, Tom Thomas is telling us, man, Jesus is so beautiful that he kicks out other things and we find that he's more enjoyable than anything that we crowded our heart with before. Oh, praise God. And number five, I end with this. It says that it produces perseverance in us. I won't take time to elaborate this. We need to get to the Lord's table. But Paul says that when these Thessalonians received the word of God, as it really was the word of God, and it was at work in them, it bore itself out because they had strength and perseverance in the midst of trial and persecution. And he goes on in verses 14, 15, and 16 to say is that you imitated these other earlier Christians who, some of them were even losing their lives. And this word of God put steel in your spine and made you persevere to the end because there's something better coming, which is life forever with Jesus forever and ever and ever. So the question for us, friends, is do we believe this about God's word? If so, are we making it our lifelong pursuit to take it in? Maybe you are a Christian in here and the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart about your lackadaisical relationship with God's word. Don't leave this place feeling beat up by the long-winded shouting preacher. Come on, that's just who I am. Don't, don't get mixed up on that. I'm half Italian. My dad was a football coach. When I want to say something, I yell. That's what I do. I'm not beating you up. I'm right there with you. We need to confess, repent, say, God, reorder my desires so that this word, this beautiful word, which is your word, the word from heaven, would be at work in me and it would do wonderful, intangible, innumerable, beautiful, lifelong things in me until that day when the word is needed no more and I'm standing before the living word and I don't need the written word anymore because the incarnate word of Jesus is right there face to face and I will enjoy him and obey him forever and ever and ever. Oh, Lord, speed that day. And maybe the thing that you need to do, dear brother or sister in Christ, is you need to say, Lord, reorder afresh my affections. And if you're an unbeliever in this room, I'm so glad that you're here. I just pray that maybe even through the folly of my goofy, jacked-up personality, that God would maybe be so kind as to let you see that there's, a, there's like a joy, there's a beauty, that you're a sinner, that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. And, and God has revealed himself, not just by nature, as beautiful as that is, but he's revealed himself through his word. And he's revealed the person and work of Jesus, his son, who lived a life just like you were living, who faced everything that you're facing and laid down his life, his beautiful, perfect life as a human and his eternal holiness as God on the cross and bore the punishment of the Father for you and bore it so that you would not have to bear the punishment of God, which you can never bear. He bore it if you will turn away from your sin and you will turn to the new and greater affection of Jesus. Of all the things that I want you to hear today, I don't want you to hear all that guy just yelled at me and said I should read my Bible. I want you to see this beautiful affection, this beautiful joy that is Christ and his love for you. If you 
you will turn from old false ways and you will trust in Jesus. Do that even now. You don't need to recite a prayer. Or you, you just need to look away from yourself. Like, like stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to figure out everything and look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know. You just, I just think that you're so lovely. I've got to trust in you. Like do it right now. And be reconciled to your creator. Let's pray. Father, in just a moment as we receive communion, I pray that as we take the bread, as we drink the little cup of juice, it would be something so much bigger and greater and profound than just a little portion of bread and liquid. that we would see in these elements the beauty of the gospel, that we would see our only hope, that we would see that great, grand, and glorious new affection that is Jesus, and that we would trust in him, and that we would put all our hope in him, and that you would reorder our affections and that we would engulf ourselves in the word that you have spoken through him and for him and about him so that for the rest of our time on this earth while the word is still necessary you will keep our hearts and work in us and protect us and bring us to that day when we will stand before you face to face and the written word will give way to the living word, the word of God in the flesh, Christ Jesus. And we will enjoy and delight in you forever and ever. When we take this bread and this juice, let us see that, long for that, lean into that, and rest in that. Lord, I pray that you do this for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.